Get ready to enjoy an earful of auditory indulgence as you explore Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, presented in cooperation with Workman Publishing. What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 26 of the 1,000 Recordings podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and with me, as always every week, is the cosmic Mitchell Davis. Hey, it's a, how's it going? It's going good. It's going been good, a long man. Time. It's been yeah. I, I'm glad to be back after our hiatus, uh, which was my fault. Um, at a concert, big concert that I did here a couple weeks ago, and then immediately following that, I went back to Texas for memorial service, and just got back into Indiana, you know, a few days ago. So, um, but yeah, we're back, and. <laughs> It's good to be back after, uh, you know, a couple of weeks off. Yeah. 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 So how, how have you been doing? Good. Good. Just uh, same old, same old working, trying to keep a, keep afloat, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, dealing with a nice weather, weather here in, in Houston. Well, you, you were here that one day. I mean, it kind of rained that one day, but the weather here <laughs> yeah. in Houston has been, been pretty nice. Yeah, it kind of rained. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of. Um, yeah. Uh, so anyway, um, yeah, it's good to be back and, uh, good to be talking with you again and good to be looking at five new albums, uh, this week from Tom Moon's book. In which we're going to start with David Bowie's The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Then we're going to move on to The Boys of the Low, live at Passim. I think that's how you say it, Low. Yeah, I thought it was either Lau or Low. Lau, you know. maybe Lau, Boys of the Low, L-O-U-G-H. I don't know. They're, they are a Celtic band. Um, then we're going to move on to three albums of composer Johannes Brahms and uh, the first album we're going to look at is uh, his cello sonata so his sonatas for cello and piano then we're going to move on to a collection of his four symphonies and then we're going to conclude with an album of his violin sonatas so yeah let's start with uh, David Bowie and uh, the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, released in 1972, and uh, you know the the story. I'm going to ask you about this in a minute, but um, it's you know a loose sort of concept album. Oh yeah, right. And the concept albums were big in the 70s. A concept album, if you, if you're not familiar with that, uh, was basically a record that told some kind of story. Right, mm-hmm. in in yeah. most simple terms, um, and uh, you know, other concept albums of the '70s would be like Rush Twenty One Twelve. That was a concept album. Uh, I don't know. Can you think of any more? Uh, Elton John's uh, <laughs> "Goodbye Yellowbrook Road," I, I believe uh, that was another one. Uh, kind of just a, an, an album, you know, where where an artist would a lot of times take on a character. Or an album would have like another sort of like theatrical lean outside of just the music. I mean, you know, it, it could be music, but it, it could also be stage presentation, like like with Ziggy Stardust. 
uh, the, the Who, for instance, were were I mean one of those groups that were real heavy on making, I guess what you would call concept albums. Uh huh. Yeah. With uh, yeah. you about, know the way they would you know drive uh, music and and movie you know and in and even sometimes you know you know stage play I guess at this point with them. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I want to say one of the '70s Genesis albums that I can't bring to my mind was a concept album, um, which they were very uh, sort of theatrical in the '70s when uh, when you know when Peter yeah. Gabriel was was their singer. Yeah, um, yeah, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, I think. Uh, oh, was, yeah, 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 yeah. I think that was right. the one. Uh, yeah, that was you know definitely. I mean, they they had all sorts of stuff going on musically, but on stage too, it was just. Crazy. I mean, another group, Pink Floyd. I mean, they're oh god. Oh right. Let's, let's, you want to talk about concept albums? Yeah. <laughs> okay, like the Wall. The Wall, instance, definitely. You know? Yeah. Yeah. This is a major, major example of a concept album that you know, you know, inspired people. And I think that's another thing with the the idea of so called concept album is you know kind of inspire people you know beyond what you normally get with you know especially the rock and roll artist or, or, or music, you know, just, just kind of something to, to go, you know, one, two, several steps beyond in, in Bowie's case, you know, uh, what you normally would, would get, um, you know, a little fantasy, uh, you know, some imagination, uh-huh. you know, just, uh, and definitely image. I mean, Bowie, uh, was very deliberate about, you know, putting an image of himself out there somewhat androgynous in this case with Ziggy Stardust and, and trying to reach a, an audience possibly that no one really had gone after. I mean, some people had in the, in the glam rock sort of glam rock sense, you know, you know, T-Rex and, and, and that kind of thing, but not the way he did on this album. Um, yeah. And you know, a lot of those other concept albums in the seventies were really heavy on uh, on their story, you know, very very specific, you know, and detailed in their stories. And uh, I feel like the this album, the story is more of like a, a vehicle for the image, like yeah. you were talking about, a vehicle to cultivate the image. And and the story itself is very is very vague, um, yeah, and and loose, um, much more so than other concept albums. In fact, you know, there's a a little excerpt on uh, Wikipedia from an interview that he did in the seventies with William S. Burroughs, where mm-hmm. he is going through and sort of telling the story and uh, you know, reading it, it's almost like reading a transcript of a child's story, you know, because in a, in a children's story, you know, just like there's no real, explanation there's no reason for stuff happening just stuff happens you know and, yeah. and, and it, when it, and a kid is telling a story they're like okay this happens and then he goes here and this happens and then this happens and then this happens it's it, that's sort of what it's like you know <laughs> reading it um, yeah and uh so i just felt like you know this the story was just like i said just kind of a vehicle for the image part but yeah i i would agree with you i, I think bowie kind of was was deliberate in, in that sense too where some of this you know he seemed like it, it was inspired by a, a, a variety of things that just you know what he would see on his day-to-day 
walkings, you know, um, like a guy that was on his record label, uh, who was nicknamed Stardust Cowboy, you know, that was part of where the Ziggy Stardust name came from. And then the Ziggy part, you know, he said he, he saw like a clothing store uh, that was called Ziggy's. And he thought, you know, well, you know, clothing is going to be a real heavy emphasis on this. So we're, we're going to do that. And also, too, I think he said something about the name Ziggy was one of the only Christian names he could think of that started with the name Z. Um, so I, I think he kind of just, you know, gradually kind of built a, a character, you know, with with little things here and there. And um, wasn't meant to like, you know, be this, you know, this like a major deal, like you said, just kind of like a vehicle to help the music along. And, and also to 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 kind of tap into the the nature of of what makes human beings, you know, you know, really, really nice and beautiful and then really ugly and tragic. Uh, I think there's a lot of that mixed into the, the Ziggy Stardust character as well. You know, he. He's supposed to be well-meaning and, and, and wishes, you know, peace for, for this race of people since he's, he's apparently not from this earth. But he himself has all sorts of issues where he's on drugs and, and is, you know, really, you know, freaking and promiscuous and, and has all the, you know, the pitfalls that, that, you know, usually come with rock and roll superstars, so to speak, I guess. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think Bowie, he he had a, a a sort of feeling where a lot of that stuff in rock and roll shocked him, but a lot of it, you know, really intrigued him and attracted him. Where he was like, you know, this is awful, but I I can't stop, you know, digging it, so to speak. Um, you know, and I think that's a, a, a where a lot of this came, you know, in the inspiration for his, his Ziggy Stardust character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we're gonna start with his tune, Starman. And uh, I guess the story of Starman, or basically what the song is about, is uh, it's sung from the point of view of a young man hearing Ziggy Stardust's message on a radio and hearing Ziggy Stardust perform on the radio. Hmm. Um, And uh, Ziggy Stardust's message is sort of, you know, he, 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 I guess the deal is like, he's like, this he's not the star man he's like the star man's representative on earth to convey the star man's message of peace and love right mm-hmm. um and you know a lot of people have likened it to you know this second coming of christ and all this stuff um that's supposed to sort of be like but um yeah yeah <laughs> but uh, i'm sorry i keep coughing that's <laughs> okay that. um but one thing I was really struck by when I first hear it is just the dissonance in the opening chords in the guitar. Mm-hmm. Uh, playing these chords with these really dissonant notes thrown in. And uh, another thing I thought was kind of interesting is that the chorus is based on Harold Arlen's Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Mm. So... Uh, you know, you get that chorus that goes, there's a star man, mm-hmm. like that. And then you yeah. get somewhere over <laughs> the rain. You know, it's it's based on that same ascending melodic leap, you know, and the same rhythm and everything. Um, 
and it, you know, which I think, you know, it was on purpose, you know, somewhere yeah. the subject of somewhere over the rainbow. And, you know, it, this, this story is, is, is kind of like, uh, pre, I want to say like a pre post-apocalyptic world. Yeah, I guess. definitely. Yeah. The world is announced. It's going to end in like five days. And so everybody just sort of, everything's in chaos and, and Ziggy Stardust comes down to try to save everybody with his message and then subsequently gets destroyed himself by getting caught up in the sort of rock star lifestyle of drugs and sex. And yeah, it, it, yeah. like I said, it's all, it's all kind of unclear, you know, like on one account I read, it was Ziggy Stardust that destroyed himself on another account. I read it was, the Starman aliens who destroy Ziggy because they need his matter <laughs> to exist in our world because they're made of antimatter. Now it's really all of this really out there, but <laughs> um, yeah. What did you think of Starman? Well, I mean, going back to what you were saying about about the guitar, uh, one thing I, I definitely want to mention talking about this album is Mick Ronson. Uh, Mick Ronson was basically alongside David Bowie for a very long period of time, you know, during his, his early recording career. And I mean, he, he is very, very important to me. I mean, as far as the, the way these records sounded, I mean, he just has a very distinct style of playing when, when he's, when he plays. And, uh, he, I think he passed away like in the early nineties and, um, Honestly, when when he did pass, I really wasn't aware of him by by name. And then somebody turned to me, you know, I was like, who's Mick Ronson? And like, you know, okay, if you listen to David Bowie, especially early David Bowie, you know who Mick Ronson is. I mean, you may not know him by name, but you know his guitar. So if you listen to like, you know, Suffragette City or 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 Changes or any any of those songs, you know his guitar playing. I mean, it it it's just it's just David Bowie and you know, all over. I mean, when you when you hear the guy, and then, you know, when I I first got to you know realizing who he was and 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 how much of an influence he had, you know, was was kind of sad. And I mean, initially when I I'd heard about him dying, I mean, about, like I said, it's been like like in the early nineties. Um, but to go back and and listen to how much he he played a part in. And especially in this record, I mean, you know, his influence is is huge, um, and and I I guess like you said, going back to the the issue of 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 Ziggy and and, and how he died and, and and the story and how it comes together, I think that's part of the mystique too. Is that you know people kind of add their own spin on it. You know, I mean, a, a variety of people, you know, fans and and, and critics alike, you know, just he he kind of became like a cult figure for for David Bowie uh and and all these people that that wanted to emulate him you know guys that you know had no business wearing you know spandex or high heels suddenly found themselves <laughs> in 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 that type of clothing and it was it was just really an interesting period where you know people were were kind of experimenting with all sorts of you know I guess what you would call like out there fashion, you know, and, and, um, 
I, I guess, you know, it, it's just a, a one part of, of, of Bowie's sort of persona where, you know, he kind of, you know, did that and, and then got to a point where he moved on. And, and that's that's one thing I've respected about him over the years is that he he he's always trying to do different things, you know, whether it be in music or an image uh, as far as how he looks, how he dresses, what's going on on stage, uh, even in movies or short films or whatever. You know, he's he's always interested in, in, in trying to, you know, keep from getting stagnant, so to speak. Um, and I, I I think that that this was just a a great, great milestone in, in his career as as how he's done that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well let's check out the first track. Um this is Starman from David Bowie. We just heard Starman, and we're going to move on to the second track from the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, Ziggy Stardust. Uh, and uh, this one is, I think, from Ziggy's point of view, uh, talking about, I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, or, or somebody, I could be wrong, but the Spiders from Mars are his band. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, Ziggy <laughs> yeah. Stardust and the Spiders from Mars are his band. Um, and I think this is talking about uh, Ziggy sort of as, as the rock star, you know, the rock star Ziggy, um, being on stage, the, um, the sort of, 
encompassing the rise and fall, like like the uh, album says, and talking about uh, you know getting into the scene and the drug use and the the rock and roll lifestyle and yeah. What did you think of this Ziggy Stardust? Well, just uh, you know, just a, a great um, sort of setup for the the, the concept of. Of, of like you said, who who Ziggy is, who the spiders from Mars are, the the whole you know kind of you know goings on of, of of what he's about, what he looks like, you know, what he's into, what his problems are. I mean, it's just a like I said, a a real good setup to to the the, the character or persona that that is is Ziggy. And like I said, you know, you know, people over the years have. Have you know gone through this song and, and and picked it apart and tried to you know figure out you know what what Bowie was talking about and I wonder sometimes you know if if Bowie it, a lot of times was just kind of making stuff up as he went along which you know even even that you know at at times works if if that's true because I mean it 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 was all just fun you know even from a an image standpoint you know where you know people got to see you know the the things that he would bring out. I mean, the, the clothes he would wear, these, these crazy wigs that he would put on. And, um, you know, it was, it was all just, it was all just kind of like a, like a great story, like a fantasy like story. And it was something that, you know, wasn't really done like this. I don't think before, you know, Bowie decided to kind of, you know, take on, you know, you know, rock and roll, you know, with with fantasy and with the you know, kind of unusual look that he had. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. And, and I go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no. Uh, I was just gonna say. Um, yeah, I think you're right because, you know, reading this stuff and reading you know about the creation of the album and all that stuff, and the concept. You know, when you're making an album, usually the music is the whole deal, right? Yeah. Um, or if it's not a hundred percent of it here, music is just part of the whole thing. You know, oh, I think yeah. the, the clothes and the outfits, you know, he, he worked with a Japanese um, designer for all of his outfits and costumes and the hair and the makeup and the theatricality and, you know, just just the entire package, you know, all this stuff was as important as the music was to Bowie, you know. Oh yeah. Um, and yeah, I think you're right. I think that's one of the first times that that this this element of theater, you know, was so important in the music. Uh, yeah, and of course you can't really get that just sitting down and listening to the album, but uh, yeah, yeah, you watching the. The actual uh, the movie, I mean, the, the, it's, it's more like a like a stage show where they, you see them perform. Yeah, it, it definitely adds a a very important element that that you need to get the full scope of what they were doing. I mean, you because you see them on stage, but also you see them behind the stage and the things going on, the, the costume changes and the makeup, and you know, um, glam rock was was something I, I think that. You know, obviously a lot of people got into, but a lot of people, you know, totally misunderstood. I mean, and I mean, David Bowie, I'm sure caught, you know, you know, hell as much as heaven, you know, for for the image he had. I mean, you know, some people just totally, 
you know, missed it where they 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 couldn't figure out, you know, okay, is he is is David Bowie, you know, a man or a woman? Is he is he gay? Is he straight? And you know, is he both? You know, and then you know, I think Bowie kind of wanted to kind of wanted to mess with people a little bit in that sense to where, you know, he kind of had them wondering, you know what was he or, or yeah. why was he, you know, and yeah. I, I think he, he really enjoyed, you know, being in that position, so to speak. Um, yeah, I, definitely. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I don't know. Is there anything else you want to say about it before we play? No, it? not really. I mean, you know, I mean, there's, there's, a, like I said, there's a lot we could, we could go delve on with the, yeah the, the lyrical content again, like I said, but I think Bowie just, he 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 definitely was into songwriting, but that wasn't his main thing. He felt like just just leaning on that was was not nearly enough. You know, he felt like it had, it had become somewhat I don't know, just passe to just think that that songwriting as an art was was the only thing that you you could do to kind of you know express your your artistic bent, if you will. Now, obviously he. He had a lot to express, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, yeah, but, uh, but uh, and you posted um, some of this video footage on the Facebook page, right? Yeah, that's that's from the that's from the movie, um, and I I, I want to say I, I've seen the whole movie. It was a long time ago, like on on Night Flight. I think uh, used to be used to come on TV way back when. I want to say they played it and. Um, and, and went into kind of, you know, the information about, you know, the, the making of it. But you, yeah, I'm sure they, it's available now, you know, but it, that's where I think that's where that, that that's from is from that the actual movie, uh, Ziggy Stardust and Spires from Mars. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, people should definitely go and check that out and watch it because, like we said, if you only listen to the album, you're really only getting maybe half of what's going on, you know. Um, so I would, uh, encourage all you guys to go to our Facebook page and, and check that out. But uh, let's listen to the last track that we're going to play from David Bowie and his album Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. This is Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> played guitar Chiming good with weird and gaily And the spiders from Mars They played it left hand But made it too far Became the special man Then we were Ziggy's band Ziggy really sang Screwed up eyes and screwed down hairdo like some cat from Japan He could lick them by smiling He could leave them to hang They came on so loaded, man Well hung and snow white tan Just the beer like to guy 
And we just heard Ziggy Stardust. And we're going to move on to our second album for this week, Boys of the Low, live at Passim from 1975. And this is another Celtic entry. Um, we had one, you know, on the last show, the Body Band. And it th- I think this is just our second, right? Our second Celtic record that we've uh, talked about. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, there was another one. Well, was there? To think back. Actually, I take that back. That was the the one I'm thinking about. It was more like a like a Cajun thing. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm sorry. Uh, I think you're right. I think this is only the the only the, only, uh, the second one that we yeah. had. Um, yeah, yeah. So the second one, kind of interesting that it's you know comes sort of back to back. Yeah, back to back. <laughs> but um, this is a little different than the Bothy band. This is what I would say. You know, like the best Celtic pub band you, you, you'll ever hear. Like th- this, yeah. this music is perfect for, you know, a pub. And I think, I don't know if that's where they are, but it sounds like that's where they are. Yeah. Um, they're I, just, I, I think, think they did. I think they recorded it live in a, uh, in this, like it's, it's, I, I forget the title of the play, but it's, it looks like it's, it's just like a little, like a little small pub, you know, yeah. where they, they, I guess it's like they're, you know, it's a perfect place, obviously, for a recording like this. Um, the they're they're amazing musicians. I mean, really, really amazing. I mean, to to be, I don't know, as as, as frantic as as some of these recordings are in the in the style. I mean, they they seem to stay very tight with each other. You know. Uh, yeah, yeah, and also. Uh great storytellers, uh, which we're going to hear on the first track. Um, and, uh, you know, this, all of this music came from a storytelling tradition that goes back thousands of years. And, uh, you know, all this stuff comes from a story, a storytelling tradition that is an oral tradition. And which means, you know, they're, they're stories, they're, they're folk tales, they're old myths, these kind of things that are passed down from one generation to the next generation through uh, sort of poet, sort of reciting them in a, a, like a poetic meter. And often uh, these, these stories are set to music and that's what this, you know, a lot of this stuff is. And from that tradition and uh, the first track that we're going to listen to is called general Guinness and it's prefaced by a little, story that's that's uh quite funny and uh then goes into this uh just this little sing-songy um story about uh, basically about guinness you know <laughs> um, mm-hmm. the the beer the national drink of ireland yeah. <laughs> um, and uh yeah I don't, what did you think of general guinness very funny uh yeah. especially i mean done in an acapella you know style and the, and like you said the the initial part where the guy talks about you know the the guy that's basically drunk and i mean just just kind of like a funny a funny way to, to start the song and and and, and I, I i imagine them you know set up in a pub or 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 you know a really small place a club where somebody's having a party or get together they're, like you said initially, they they're just they're just like the perfect band. They're like the ultimate, you know, 
Irish Celtic folk house band uh, because they just they can just totally, you know, set the mood, you know, as you will for such events, you know, like, you know, whether it be like someone's someone's wedding or after wedding, I, I would suppose, or, or or birthday party or whatever. I mean, they just very, very festive. Um, and like you said, the 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 manner in which they tell stories, it it has an appeal with young and old, and and I think that's so very important when when you have a gathering, and you're you're trying to get everybody kind of in a good mood. Obviously, you know people are drinking and 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 feeling festive, and and they just kind of fuel that uh, with with their their style of storytelling, like in this song, and. Um, just kind of have people that you know they just sit and reflect as they they tell the stories you know and 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 kind of correlate you know you know what whatever it is that that they're talking about you know whether it be you know drinking and having fun or you know chasing you know after you know women or or chasing after men in, in the latest cases or whatever uh-huh. and um you know just it's just really nice to to kind of you know discover you know a a, a group because I, I mean people everybody knows not everybody but a lot of people know about the chieftains but i, I did not know about uh boys of the loud you know before i read it about them in this book and um like i said just just really really great great musicianship so very tight <laughs> with with each other i mean they they never seem to really kind of you know come out of sync when they're they're playing you know really really nice mix of of you know like you said storytelling and music yeah yeah well let's hear an example of their uh storytelling skill and their wit um with this first track we're going to hear general guinness by boys at the low it was the pig fair last september the day i well remember I was walking up and down in drunken pride when my knees began to flutter and I sank down in the gutter and a pig came up and lay down by my side. <laughs> As I lay there in the gutter, thinking thoughts I could not utter, I thought I heard a passing lady say, you can tell the man who boozes by the company that he chooses. <laughs> and with that, the pig got up and walked away. You've heard of General Wellington who won at Waterloo But there's a good old Irish man I'll mention unto you He comes from dear old Dublin, he's a man we all applaud For he always finds a corkscrew far more handy than a sword He's good old General Guinness, he's a soldier strong and stout He's found on every bottle front and he can't be done without his noble name, his worldwide fame, deserved three hearty cheers. Hurrah for General Guinness of the Dublin Boozeleers. <laughs> this hale and hearty warrior is worshipped in the ranks, for he does his task inside the cask as well as in the tanks, and he bears the brunt on every front, north, south, east, and west. And he wears about 10 million canteen medals on his chest. He's good old General Guinness, he has won the world's applause. 
Twas him who kept our spirits up in the midst of all our wars. Who was the first to flirt with Mademoiselle from Armateurs? Why, good old General Guinness of the Dublin Blues. And we just heard General Guinness. And we're going to move on to a big uh, medley of pieces. So there's a bunch of tracks on the album that are like this, where they take different sort of traditional songs and they'll kind of string them all together and play them you know, without pause. So uh, this track is the Cameron Highlander, the Balkan Hills, and uh, the Atoll at <laughs> Brettlebane Gathering, I guess. <laughs> That's um, close enough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, basically these are three separate, completely separate songs, and uh, they'll do them just really, it's amazing how seamlessly they can stream these Oh, yeah. pieces of music together and there's no stopping it's just one goes right into the other and really just like i said so seamlessly it, it, it's it you know they do it to where it, it they make it sound really kind of easy and effortless but in in music and to do this musically to where it, you know it does sound so easy and seamless and whatever it, it's a really skillful thing to do yeah it, it's it's like the music flows in their veins like like blood yeah, it, yeah. it's amazing i mean i when i listened to this i was like wow they they're they're pretty badass <laughs> i mean just <laughs> you know just the way they they like you said they just kind of just play on and just and and jam on even and 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 just the musicianship of um the the guy that's on the mandolin uh in this group, I mean, because I, I I can't remember his name right off the top of my head. I mean, just just really really nice. I, I almost would liken them to like a very tight uh, jazz band where they they just they know each other and they know the music. You know, they they even seem to know their audience, if you will, where they they play on you know the audience as far as you know singing back and forth. And I mean that that's amazing when you can have that kind of chemistry within a group where you know you're you're on stage with each other and everything is tight and then the audience gets to participate in it and then that, that's also really fun and you know they sing along and it's it just works you know yeah yeah this is fun i mean i would love to have been in the pub for this show yeah <laughs> just just <laughs> sitting back at a table with some friends with a guinness and just experiencing it. it would, yeah been uh fantastic yeah <laughs> but, i bet i bet um so let's check this out this last track from the boys of the low i'm just going to call it the cameron highlanders medley
end, we just heard the Cameron Highlanders medley by Boys, boys at the Low and uh, Boys of the Low, of the Lao. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're going to move on to uh, 19th century classical music uh, composer, Johannes Brahms. And, uh, you know, again, this is another one of those sort of covering like uh, like Beethoven or something. You know, he's one of these giants of classical music and wrote so much music and, you know, each individual piece is, you know, we, we could spend an entire show talking about mm-hmm. just one of these, you know, sonatas for up, cello and piano. Yeah, he could fill up a whole book yeah. like this book. I, I'm pretty sure he has filled up. Oh, yeah. An books and books and books. books. Yeah, of course. Um and uh, a little bit of background, you know, born um, in Germany, 1833, died in 1897. Um, and, you know, Brahms was one of these composers, really probably one of the most extreme examples of this. He was this kind of uncompromising perfectionist. And he ended up destroying a lot of his own pieces because he was such a perfectionist you know he could not allow these pieces to uh (laughs) to exist you know in the outside world um if they didn't live up to his standards you know of of musicianship and composition and um you know there was a an article written um, in, I can't remember if it was maybe like the 70s or something, by this musicologist, I can't remember his name, but it was called The Anxiety of Influence. And it was just about, you know, composers and people who write music feeling this sense of anxiety over their influences of the past. You know, so looking at everything that's come before you and all these masterpieces and all the, you know, these amazing pieces of music that have come before you and sort of feeling that anxiety, you know, of influence. And uh, I think this is one of the first composers to really start feeling that anxiety because this is right around the time that the orchestral repertoire was starting to gel and starting to uh, really focus on, you know, representing these these pieces from the past that were being seen now as masterpieces. And so now composers are starting to have to compete with all these dead composers yeah. you know, who have these masterpieces. This is really the first time in around the mid 19th century that this is starting to happen. So previous to this, composers didn't really have to compete with that too much because uh, there weren't, there wasn't this attitude of yeah. we need we need to preserve these masterpieces you know when mozart was alive and bach was alive and and even beethoven was alive you know people really wanted new stuff and their employers constantly made them write new music to use and then this music was usually uh served its function and you know then it was replaced by new stuff um but you know not so during this time and Brahms, you know, really had a lot of respect for, uh, you know, earlier composers that came before him, especially Beethoven, excuse me, Beethoven and Bach uh, in particular. And uh, he felt this, you know, so I think this is a big part of him, 
you know, taking a really long time. Like it took him, he didn't start writing symphonies until after he was 40 and it took him like 15 years to yeah. complete his first symphony, you know, because he just felt like he couldn't get it right and it wasn't good enough and all this stuff. That that part amazed me when I read it. I didn't realize that he he was that old. I mean, not that the, I mean, I'm OK, I'm 43, but I didn't realize <laughs> it was it, it was he was that age when he wrote yeah. his first yeah. symphony. And I mean, his reasoning was that, you know he felt like he was too young to start on symphonies, I guess. And I mean, his, his mentality, I, I mean, I guess I have a, I have a deep respect for it, um, in a way. Uh, but he, I, like you said, uh, the, the, the level of perfection that he must have had to deal with through his life was, was probably somewhat stressful. Um, I guess, I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, he's he's in the like I said, you know, when we covered Beethoven, you know, all these composers um, in the 19th century are just heavily under the shadow of Beethoven and uh, Brahms especially was. And he he revered Beethoven. In fact, he had, you know, a bust of Beethoven in his apartment that like overlooked where he composed. You know, So he had like Beethoven literally always looking down on him. Um, and, uh, you know, he spent 15 years on this first symphony and when it was premiered, you know, he took a lot of criticism. A lot of the critics dubbed it Beethoven's 10th and, uh, you know, uh, after this, you know, his, his symphonies were a little bit faster. I think it just, it took him a long time to get the first one out, but you know, once the first one was out, I think he he felt a little more comfortable, uh, getting the next three out. But, um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, we're going to start with this album uh, of his sonatas for cello and piano. And uh, we have a Yo-Yo Ma as the cellist and Emmanuel Axe is the pianist. This was released in 1992. And uh, we're going to look at his, basically his sonata opus 38. So we're going to look at two tracks from the same sonata uh, written relatively early in his life so he's probably around 30 years old i think when he wrote this um and which you know for for a classical composer guys out there this is considered early (laughs) yeah if you're a rock musician not so much but um so uh yeah this is written when he's around 30 years old and uh uh we're gonna start with this uh i think we're gonna play what did I do? The first mo- first movement and the third movement, right? From the same yeah. piece. And uh, so we'll start with this first movement marked Allegro non troppo. And he, he used this marking a lot. Allegro non troppo. This means um, not too fast. This is what it means. <clears throat> and, you know, it's interesting that he, he used this marking a lot. You know, because a lot of composers would just write Allegro fast, you know. And uh, he wrote Allegro non troppo, not too fast, because he wanted the musicians to not just plow through this, you know, and play it really fast. He wanted them to, you know, take some thought, some consideration, some space to the music, you know, because Brahms, that's how he was. You know, he's very thoughtful and very kind of introspective, put a lot of thought and meaning into his music and wanted the musicians to put that same 
thought and consideration into the music, you know? So he, he marked it, you know, not, not too fast, you know, think about it. <laughs> um, yeah. what, what did you think of this first movement? Well, what I, what I do like, uh, especially what you said about the, the not too fast, uh, idea, the fact that they have, um, Yo-Yo Ma and Emmanuel Axe performing on, on this recording, I think it was just really, really a, a perfect way to set this piece up to where you have two guys who are, are obviously very talented, you know, in, in what they can bring, but also their their thought process of of sort of, you know, interpreting the music and not, like you said, not just plowing through it. Um, and what i what i do love is is how the especially on the sound of this recording they kind of have a a chemistry or musicianship where you know they don't ever kind of seem like they're they're competing with each other or or one is overlapping the other per se and and it makes this recording you know especially for someone like me who is it's like their first time getting to hear it you know, very, very pleasant where it it's it's not too grand and you, you get a great idea of, of what what bronze was like and what he was trying to produce in his music. Um, and and I, I love it. You know, and even in the book, it says it's like it, it's it's like starting small on bronze rather than starting with a, a, a great big symphony, just having, you know, these two guys playing. And and having them at their skill level and in their mentality where, you know, they they know how to blend with each other and and with respect to the piece, kind of bring out, you know, the the harmony and, and sound that, that that bronze was was trying to, I guess, purvey, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it makes total sense. I mean, one of the things that Brahms tried to do with this, and you can really hear it, you know, on this album between Yo-Yo Ma and Emmanuel Axe, like you were saying, is the dialogue, you know, between them, the back and forth dialogue. And, and one thing that Brahms tried to do here was make the piano an equal to the cello. And, in, you know, in the past, when composers would write pieces like this for some kind of melodic instrument and piano, the piano would always be more of, you know, in the background, the accompaniment to the soloist. Mm-hmm. Here, Brahms really tried to make these two instruments equal partners. And so, you know, not the cello is not necessarily more important than the piano. They're both equal. And so he creates this dialogue between the two that's it's constantly back and forth. Um, and Brahms, you know, himself was a virtuoso pianist, and he premiered this piece and premiered many of his own pieces, you know, at the piano. And so I think Brahms, you know, he... He was like, I'm not going to sit back. You know, we're going to be equal partners here. We're going to have a dialogue. And and it's fascinating to hear how that dialogue progresses and how it goes back and forth between the players. And uh, Yeah, yeah. And, I, um, I, I love um, – it, it's, it's just like the idea – okay, you remember uh, <laughs> there, was a, there was a commercial um, – I'm trying to remember like what was being advertised, uh, but but basically it was it was kind of like the the it was two basketball players, 
in a gym and you know one would would try to you know sort of up the other um you know it's like you know i'm gonna shoot from over the bleachers or i'm gonna shoot from behind the goal that kind of thing like i said i can't remember but it you know this that kind of came to mind when i when i first started listening to this but it's it's never like they're they're one one player is trying to up the other you know it's just it's kind of like you know hey let's let me show you what I can do. Or hey, let me show you what I can do. You know, but they, the the chemistry, the, it, it's never, it's never. I guess uh, it's never too proud. I, I guess is the word I'm trying trying to use. And yeah. I mean, yeah, it's respectful. That, exactly, it's, it's very yeah. respectful. It's 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 respectful. It's it's um. It's it's like a it's like a great partnership, if you would, and um. You know that that's one of the things. Cause I, I I've kind of known about about Yo-Yo Ma a lot more than than Emmanuel X. But you know, listening to this, I, I have a, a a much better respect for the both of them uh, after hearing this because they they worked very well together in their uh, playing this music. I mean, just yeah, just so very nice the way they 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 their chemistry mixed. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um yeah, let's let's just look let's listen to this. Um this is the first movement from uh Brahms Sonata for Cello and Piano Opus 38 Allegro non troppo. We just heard the Allegro non troppo from the Sonata Opus 38, and we're going to move on to the third movement, which is the final movement of the Sonata, uh, marked Allegro, fast. And uh, 
You know, one thing I forgot to mention about this piece is it's basically an homage to J.S. Bach, this piece. And the themes, the, the main theme of the first movement that we just heard is based on Bach's Contrapunctus Four from his Art of Fugue. And uh, the theme for this movement is based on Contrapunctus 14 from the Art of Fugue. And, it is, and this movement is in itself fugal. It's not as a super strict fugue like Bach would have written because it's still in this uh, 19th century romantic sonata form, but it still takes on the characteristics of a fugue. And it starts as a fugue would start, you know, with this subject and the piano. You know, it's stated really boldly, you know, in the piano. And then it's echoed in the cello. Um, and, uh, you know, then, you know, of course, the theme bounces back to the piano again. Uh, and then it starts at that point, it starts to unfold a little more unconventionally, you know, not not as Bach would have done, but, you know, as Brahms would have done. Um, yeah. And uh, it's just, a, again, a, a, just a fantastic dialogue between the two. One thing I have to mention or why I wanted to mention is, you know, the the compositional skill showed by Brahms in balance you know the balance he gets between the cello and the piano because you know cello is a really mid-rangey instrument and uh it's really easy to have it get eaten up by the piano you know mm-hmm. if the pianist is doing a bunch of stuff you know in the middle of the piano and it has a really thick texture and you have the cello in the same range it's going to eat the cello you know totally eat it and you know because uh these are acoustic instruments, so balancing them is not like balancing them like a rock band in the studio. I mean, if you're in a rock band in a studio and the electric guitar is eating up the keyboard, the solution is you just turn up the keyboard, <laughs> you know, with the volume slider. You can't do that here, you know. There, uh, so there, there's an art and a skill in you know balancing these instruments and making sure that you know one doesn't overpower the other or cover the other one up and so you can clearly hear the two instruments all the time and and um yeah, yeah it's just done in a masterful way so what did you think of this allegro well just just what you just basically said that to have um the 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 two parts that you know have sort of a tradition of one sort of dominating the other um mesh in a way or, or mix in a way that they they both have an, an equal voice you know again it, it's something i really did not consider you know until i listened to it the way that uh it, it was played here and thought to myself well you know they they are equal parts but you know are they always equal and i i didn't really consider the fact that they they weren't you know i mean to me it just sounds like you know brahms had a a way of thinking the where this is how it should always be and uh, you know it, i mean I, I think he's right but i mean it's it's usually not obviously i mean the way you described it just before i mean you know the piano usually is always going to be be dominant you know if it comes to just having piano and, and cello and again like i said it, it was something i did not consider and uh it's it's kind of fun to to listen to the the two of of them you know sort of get it out there in, in a way that that helps you to understand better you know what what brahms had in mind 
Um, and, and I mean, they, they, they're so free about it too. I mean, it never seems like they ever are, you know, hindered by anything. It, it is, it's just very, very natural. You know, the, the whole time that you're listening to them play here. I mean, it, it, it sounds very, very, very natural. It doesn't sound like it was, it was hard at all. I mean, it might've been, but it, it just flows so, so very well. Yeah. Well, man, you know, these are the two of the, of biggest badasses of classical music yeah. right here playing this stuff. So, um, yeah, let's, let's check this out. This powerhouse last movement, uh, for, uh, this, uh, sonata for cello and piano opus 38. This is the final movement allegro. And that was the Allegro from the Opus 38 Cello Sonata. And we're going to move on to 
Our fourth album, The Four Symphonies of Brahms, here performed by the NDR Symphony under Gunter Vond, um, released in 1983. And, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, how anxious he was about writing symphonies, about, you know, it took him until after he was 40 to, to start. It took him 15 years to complete his first symphony. And uh, he really didn't write that many symphonies. You know, I mean, just the number of symphonies shows you how anxious he was about writing symphonies. Uh, You know, Beethoven wrote nine symphonies. Before that, Mozart wrote more than, I think, more than 100 symphonies. Haydn wrote more than 100. Um, And many composers, you know, wrote more symphonies than this. You know, nine, ten, you know, whatever. Um, Brahms only managed four but uh you know they're they're all great obviously um we're gonna talk about uh, the first movement of his symphony number two and then the first movement of his symphony number four but uh we're gonna start with the symphony number two in d major opus 73 uh again marked allegro non troppo again so not too fast marked and uh you know it's such a difference hearing a giant piece like a symphony, you know, for a huge orchestra in contrast to the pieces we just heard, Mm -hmm. you know, these smaller chamber pieces that that are more intimate and more like dialogues and they're composed, you know, to be played in somebody's house. You know, that's what uh, the chamber music is as opposed to this, you know, which is such a huge deal and, you know, composed to, be premiered in these huge concert halls that are almost like, you know, cathedrals of music. And, uh, yeah. um, you know, you have the, the huge crowd there all dressed to the nines and, and, uh, very formal, very grand, you know, just a, just a whole different thing than what, what we just heard. Um, I don't know. What, what were your impressions of this, uh, first movement of symphony number two? Well, the the first word that comes to mind is grand, like you said. Uh, it's it's much bigger than, like you said, the the first uh, Brahms, you know, record that we listened to. I mean, it's so so much different than than the piece before. And again, like you you talked about with him, uh, not really recording many symphonies as a you know, compared to, you know, other major composers, I, I think about uh, Stanley Kubrick. Uh, he's somebody who, and I imagine a lot like Brahms, was was so hard on himself, you know, in a, in a perfectionist-like way where he wanted it to be so right, so perfect, to the point of where his output was, you know, so small, you know, but when it came out, it was so good. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I, I think that I, I'm, I'm gaining a new respect for Brahms in that sense when I look at his life and and other composers and kind of think of him the way you know Stanley Kubrick was, to where he he himself didn't really make a lot of movies. I mean, compared to some of his contemporaries, but when they came out, it was such a major event. You knew it was going to be different. You knew it was going to be special. And uh, the same thing here with Brahms, where, you know, it, it some of his pieces there, 
they're weird in, in the way they start, where they can be so quiet, you know, almost as if there's there's nothing going on at all. And then suddenly there's just like this thunderclap where the music just just explodes, you know. And and he's as I listen to this recording especially, he is notorious for that, you know, where he can go from, you know, a whisper to a scream on a dime and 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 then make it work where it's it's not like, you know, some clumsy movement of of something that you know shouldn't be um but um i i think that he will probably be one of those composers that is, is remembered for his definitely for his perfectionism and, and especially in in these pieces where the the individual parts you know again they they all have a voice nothing is really ever you know kind of minimum minimalize if you will you know everything seems very important and everything seems a part and yeah, um, yeah. that that's something that I'm, I'm beginning to recognize about him as well that he you know everything is important everything in in the movement so to speak he he wants everything to kind of you know to have its place you know otherwise it won't be there at all um and and, and i think that's that's really that's something that's really cool about about his his composition yeah I, I really like your uh your likening to stanley kubrick uh, i like that i mean he um you know the whole thing that we're going to hear that this, this beginning of this symphony number two the first movement is uh he he bills it as symphony number two in d major right so right there in the listener and, and especially 19th century listeners they they knew how this stuff worked and so they think, okay, we're go- we're about to hear a symphony in D major. So they're what they're expecting is to hear this big opening theme in D major, the home key, which is that's how normally it would work. And this whole section that we're going to hear is basically where the hell is D major? I mean, <laughs> that's this whole thing. I mean, it starts out. I mean, the word here is dramatic. You know, this whole thing is so dramatic. It starts out with this. You know, the timpanist, the timpani pounding on every beat, which is really unusual, especially classical music at this time, to, to get this like steady beat. And you get the timpanist just pounding like bam, 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 bam on every beat. And uh, you have this strings, you know, on these really dramatic sounding ascending lines while the winds and brass are on these descending lines, you know. So you have them sort of separating, one going up, one going down. Um, then they reach this apex and the strings come down on this theme while the winds and brass come back up. So it makes a sort of, you know, shape that way. Then it, it goes to this moment of repose, right? Where you have these wind chords over pizzicato strings and then these sort of longing, heavy sort of heaving chords in the strings. Then back to the opening section again but instead of having the timpanist you know pound on the timpani every beat the timpani is now rolling it's like you know so it's mm-hmm. sort of even more tense you know and shorter and this goes back and leads into like a, this oboe solo then a flute solo and yeah. then a cello section which which sort of builds up to this cadence that you think okay we're finally getting to d major but then he subverts it so the whole time the audience is expecting this 
theme in D major. It's almost like an Alfred Hitchcock film. The whole thing is just suspense. Uh-huh. That's the entire thing. And it's about leading you to these places where where he he sets it up to where he, oh, you think, okay, here comes the here here it comes. Here here comes the big theme in D major and then he subverts it again. So the whole thing is just <laughs> this this suspense, you know. Um, and where is this theme? Where is D major? Where is he going with this? Um, yeah. Um, so let's check this out. This, this, uh, very dramatic opening for his symphony number two in D major opus 73, the first movement Allegro non troppo. And we just heard the first movement of Symphony Number no. Two in D Major by Brahms, and we're going to move on to the opening of of his last symphony, Symphony Number no. Four in E Minor, Opus Ninety Eight. Again, once again, marked Allegro non troppo. Um, and uh, this piece was written in uh, 1884 when he was about 51 years old. Um, and really, you know, this one is, you know, the, the the one we heard before was all about suspense, right? Like I was talking about. Um, this one is about the journey that he takes his themes through. You know, it's how Brahms takes these themes and how, how he takes them on their journey. And, you know, I came up with this really uh, quite nerdy analogy, um, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's kind of like, 
Dungeons and Dragons a little bit. So the, <clears throat> the themes are like the players and Brahms is like the dungeon master. So he's, okay. he's, he's guiding these themes, you know, through this adventure and through all these, you know, places. And he's the guy that takes these themes on their, on their journey. And that's just the interesting thing. The cool thing about listening to this uh, movement, I think is, is just listening to what he puts these themes through, you know? Yeah. I don't know. What did you think of this? Well, yeah, that's, that's definitely an interesting way to, to look at it. Um, I, uh, again, like I said, I, I, I think it, it, it's, it's a great, great piece to kind of represent, you know, his, his way of, of, of just tinkering with, with little things that, that's, I guess, sort of become big. Um, you know, like you said, um, he, he kind of wants to have you, you know, kind of go on, I guess, like a journey with him, so to speak, and and maybe just kind of has things going on in his head where he, he kind of gradually will, you know, lay them out in the piece, you know. And I I still really can can kind of, you know, hear the, like you said, the, the, the subtle things going on where, you know, it it it, it kind of gets like I said. It, it's at times it's it's just really, really, really quiet, almost as if there's nothing going on, and then suddenly it's 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 not. I mean, suddenly it just it just grabs you, and and I mean, and in this piece, it just takes you and and throws you up in the air, like you know, are you are you still with me? Are you still awake? <laughs> you know, I, I that was something that I I noticed, you know, listening to this and 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 kind of was was thinking to myself, you know, because I, I mean, I, I was intent on, on, on being focused on it, you know, the, the whole time. And if, if, if I gradually would kind of stray away, you know, suddenly I, you know, was kind of pulled in to where I was, I was thinking something else. And then as the piece changed, you know, it kind of, you know, you know, jolts me. I, I don't know if that's, that's the right way of saying it. I mean, not, not to say that I, I was, I was not paying attention or falling asleep or anything, but it, it, it it's 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 unusual how it moved you know the, yeah, yeah. the piece as a whole i mean you know i i i definitely think that he uh he he wants you to to not really sit and and, and think of it as just a normal you know whatever type piece of music he he he's definitely trying to 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 sort of you know you know, be different if, if anything else by, by punctuating things here and there and then kind of th- keeping things, you know, really, really quiet and really, really subtle on other, other ends. And, you know, is, is maybe trying to, you know, I, I don't know that I, I, I didn't feel off balance, but, but, but to, to kind of, you know, keep you guessing if you will. Um, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I mean, he, you know, he got that from straight from Beethoven, you know, his, yeah. His, his hero that, you know, that's what Beethoven was all about, you know, is uh, subverting people's expectations and keep keeping people guessing about, you know, what is, what is he going to do next and all that stuff. And, and yeah, he really took that model and, and kind of ran with it here. Um, so yeah, let's check it out. This uh, first movement from symphony number four of Johannes Brahms and E minor opus 98. This is his Allegro non troppo.
And we just heard the first movement of Symphony Number no. 4. And we're going to move on to our final album of the day, Brahms Violin Sonatas, Opus 78, 100, and 108, performed by Josef Suk and Julius Kachin, uh, released in 1967. And again, kind of like the cello sonatas, um, I pulled two examples from the same piece so we could hear... Um, you know, just, just how he's a little bit of, you know, how he's working, um, the same piece. And for the cello sonata, I chose the early sonata for this. I chose the late sonata. So we're going with, uh, opus 108 and, uh, which was composed, uh, late in, uh, in Brahms's life. And, uh, so we get sort of bookends here, um, with the sonatas and uh, we're going to start with uh, the third movement of Opus 108, marked Un Poco Presto y Con Sentimento, which means uh, a little fast and with sentimentality. Um, and uh, again, here, like the cello sonatas, you know, the violin and piano here are equal partners. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in this movement, the piano really is featured. Um, and... Uh, you know, you have the the almost like the violin accompanying the piano here in a lot of it, with the the piano doing these sort of virtuosic arpeggios, you know, up up and down the keyboard, and the violin sort of playing these punctuated notes or or chords to sort of accompany what the piano is doing. Um, yeah, what did you think of this one? Uh, just very, very, very steady, uh, very melodic. The the play between the piano and cello. Um, piano, probably my, piano and violin. I'm sorry, piano and violin. <laughs> I, I said cello. I'm thinking about the, the first know. one we did. I'm so sorry. Um, but the 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 play between them is it's it's so very very steady. Never never really gets you know too out of you know sync at all i mean it never really gets out of sync period i'm sorry and it's 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 so it's so beautiful the the play the interplay between the the violin and piano and i you know am curious about the 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 two that are playing on this recording apparently they were they they have other recordings they they've done together outside of this i i i really liked the the sound of, of of this record probably more than than any of the bronze we've talked about. Uh, just uh, just very 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 easy to like. Uh, you know, I mean, stripped down to to the basics and um, you know, very sensitive to the piece itself where they, you know, a lot like the the first one. But but maybe even even more subdued at times, you know, is it, it can be very, very, very quiet Well, not quiet. I mean, very peaceful, I think this is a, is a word I'm trying to use uh, in the way the harmonies play with each other. Um, that's that's one thing that I, I, I definitely loved about this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like what you said about you know, sort of stripped down. And, you know, with a piece like this, you know, with just violin and piano, everything, everything is exposed. You know, you, with unlike with like an orchestra or larger ensemble, you know, the composer 
can't hide behind the orchestration and all that stuff. It, everything is exposed, not just the playing, not just the performance, but the composition itself and the skill of the composer is everything is right there and totally exposed and intimate and yeah and uh you know you better have you bring your compositional chops to something like this yeah because yeah. that's the only thing that's going to hold it up you know um, yeah yeah um so yeah let's check out this uh this first example the third movement from opus 108 the un poco presto y consentimento We just heard the third movement from Opus 108, Violin Sonata of Johannes Brahms. We're going to move on to the last movement of this piece, marked Presto Agitato, uh, which means fast and agitated. Um, And, uh, you know, this movement is just really virtuosic, really shows off um, the interplay between the the violin and the piano. And... uh, uh, I, I'd say this movement and these sonatas are, I'd say they're even more about the interplay between the two than the cello sonatas are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I put down in my notes that this movement is like a furious tennis match, you know, and the, you know, the theme is like the tennis ball and they're, they're both just, you know, one will get the theme and, you know, run with it, you know, you know, maybe the piano up and down and then launch it back at the violin. The violin will, you know, pick it up and, you know, do things with it really fast and, you know, <laughs> you know, launch it back at the pianist who will, who will pick it up. And it's just this constant back and forth, you know, and, yeah. and just so virtuosic and, and exciting. And yeah. What, what did you think of this? Well, again, like I said, I, I, I'm really, I admire the, the two players, I guess, Sukin and Katchen, they like you said they you know in a in a virtuoso type manner just go back and forth you know and 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 keep respect to the piece uh 
you know, without kind of showing off too much and, and just keep it beautiful. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's just one of those things that, you know, I, I think they, if, if Brahms were to have it played, like when he was alive, it would just sound just like this, you know, it's not like they're trying to, to change anything to modernize it or anything. They, they, they bring it in a traditional sense. I, I mean, I'd imagine. And, um, you know, I, I just love to hear it like this. I mean, you know, and, and not really being a, a, a classical music lover or anything to, to hear it in a, in a, in a pure form, you know, is, is, is great. You know, it, it gives you a, a, a better idea of what the composer wanted to say and, and, and have it, you know, done in a, in a style where you have two people who just really, really know how to bring it forth and, and not, you know, add anything that, that shouldn't be there, so to speak. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's the, that's one thing that I, I, I really love, uh, about this recording, uh, just a, a different perspective, if you will, um, for, for someone who is, is still, you know, kind of, you know, sticking his foot in the shallow end of the pool when it comes to classical music. So, um, <laughs> yeah, cool, man. Well, I'm glad you dug it. Uh, well, should we just, should we listen to this last excerpt? Oh yeah. Cool. All right, let's man, let's it. check it out. This is the fourth movement of Brahms violin sonata opus 108, the presto agitato. heard the fourth movement presto agitato of johannes brahms violin sonata opus 108 and that's going to do it for this week of the 1000 recordings podcast if you'd like to send us an email please do at uh, 1000 recordings podcast at gmail.com you can look at our website where you can uh, find links to all the albums that we listen to if you'd like to purchase them 
And, uh, uh, and if you do, you know, please do go through our website because if you, uh, go through the link <clears throat> on our website, excuse me, uh, we'll get a little kickback and that'll help with the show. Uh, you can, you can, um, go to our website at 1000rp.blogspot.com. You can join us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 1000rp. And you can join us on Facebook and watch Ziggy Stardust. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, next week, what do we have next week? Uh, that's a good question. Um, uh, let me see here. I know we I have just one more album of Brahms. Yeah. And I was just looking at it here. Um, where'd it go? Oh, here we go. Uh, yep. After, uh, Brahms, uh, piano concerto number two, um, Anthony Braxton, uh, album's called for altos, uh, jazz saxophone player. Um, Bright Eyes, uh, I'm awake, I'm wide awake, it's morning. I have no idea. Uh, I've no, that's I'm new. A, yeah, new to me too. Yeah, I, that one I don't, I'm not real familiar with, but that's okay. You know, that's, that's why we're doing this. Uh, then, um, Looks like Benjamin Britten, uh, the Peter Grimes opera. Yeah, that's a uh, huge, yeah, huge <laughs> opera. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> You're like, oh that's, god. There we go. <laughs> that should be interesting. And then uh, I think this is a uh, Big Bill Brunzi. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, the young Big Bill Brunzi uh, between 1928 and 1935, where he recorded for what record label was this? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure either. But but basically, you know, just some very, you know, old school blues from the 1940s, uh, Chicago blues. Uh, that should be good. Uh, oh yeah, I think I actually is he is he from Chicago or is he from Mississippi? Uh, I think he combines both styles. But anyway, you know, blues artist Bill Brunzi next yeah, week. Awesome. Yeah, well, it sounds like a good uh, eclectic mix as usual. Oh yeah, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. So, um, yeah, I think that's it for this week. Cool. It's been fun, man. Get back together and sitting and talking. Yeah, yeah, it's been cool. So yeah, we uh, um, don't have anything immediate coming up, so we should be back next week for episode 27. And until then, we will see you guys and. Uh, Look forward to, uh, yeah, hearing some new music. Great. So long, everybody. Have a great week. All right. Later. <laughs>